Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome back to this special episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And I'm Will Foxley, a tech reporter at Coindesk. Since launching this series in early February, Christine and I have chatted with a number of guests, including folks like Danny Ryan, David Hoffman, and most recently, Prismatic Labs' Raul Jordan. But starting from today, we're going to be welcoming a new permanent co-host for the show who will discuss, debate, and explore the many dimensions of ETH2 development with each of us each week. I'm pleased to welcome as our new show co-host, the lead product owner at Consensus for ETH2 client Teku, Ben Edgington. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Hey, Will. Hey, Christine. I'm uh, excited to be joining you on this adventure. <laughs> ben, you are known for some of the best insights about Ethereum 2.0 through your bi-weekly newsletter, What's New in ETH2. And Will and I are going to spend most of this episode getting to know you, your work, and your involvement in the space. But before we get into that, I do have a little impromptu guest that I wanted to invite on for the show this week because Coindesk East 2.0 Validator recently got activated. I think it was like 3 a.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, and it started earning rewards. It's been re earning rewards for the past two days. So here to give us a little bit of a brief update on the Coindesk East 2.0 Validator node, which apparently we've named Zelda is Coindesk Director of Engineering, Spencer Beggs. Hi, Spencer. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> it's alive, finally. <laughs> so Spencer, please give us the details. How's Zelda doing? What can you tell me about its performance so far? Uh, doing just fine. We had a couple of hiccups right at the very beginning there, but it really seems to be doing fine. In fact, if anything, you know, I think I might have over-provisioned the resources a little bit. We sort of switched out at the last minute. We were using Open Ethereum to sync our ETH1 nodes, and we were having some issues with that, both in slowness and getting it to monitor properly. And so at the last minute, you know, shortly before we went live, I swapped that out with Geth, which seems to be much more stable, and we have a, a lot better monitoring on it. So uh, pretty happy with it. It was, it was really fun to see that light turn green on the Beacon Chain website. Yeah, it's yeah. Geth on the Ethereum 1 chain, and then it's Lighthouse for Ethereum 2.0, right? The client that we're using. Uh, yes, Lighthouse is the beacon chain and validator client. Nice. I uh, checked out the, the performance earlier, and it looks uh, like it's running perfectly. But uh, you mentioned you got off to a bit of a slow start, I think missing about seven hours of attestations at the beginning. So what, what happened? Yeah, uh, so the, the real answer is that uh, we've been working very hard on the engineering team here, uh, launching Coindesk TV. We were scheduled to go live at 3.48 a.m. in the morning, and I kind of planned to stay up to watch it. There was a permission issue with some files in the process that was going to be doing the validating that I didn't catch. I kind of fell asleep and woke up in the morning and was like, oh no, the <laughs> we went live. And I went in, I logged in and fixed the permission issue, rebooted it. It started working. I had to tell Michael Casey that I think we lost $3.45, but we were back in the black within 24 hours. I think everyone's happy. We'll be sure to take it out of your paycheck. Don't worry. <laughs> 
for yeah, it all. Yeah. Listen, listen, if, if you take it out of my paycheck, that means I also get the profits, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not how we do things here. You should know that. Fair. Listen, Will, fair is fair. <laughs> that $3 of ether one day could be worth so much more. Uh, and that's uh, what you laugh. You, you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> What's this 40 bitcoins worth of pizza? No, seriously. Yeah. So I, <laughs> our, the last time you were on the podcast, you walked us through a million security tips, uh, which was great. And I think we got a lot of good feedback from listeners about how helpful it was for people setting up their own validators. I want to circle back to that conversation and just ask you reflecting on the process of building out the validator. I mean, it's been a month or more since you uh, kind of finished putting it together and then we we're kind of waiting for it. But any other tips or just kind of reflections on that whole process for people who are looking to create their own validator? You know, it's definitely worth getting yourself a computer that can be air-gapped to generate your, your ETH deposit keys. I think that that's worth, I mean, maybe that's that's one step farther than most people go, but just sort of thinking about how all this works, there is just a very serious issue with making sure that those stay private and, you know, generating your keys on an air-gapped computer is, that's never been connected to the internet is probably the best way to do that. Yeah. I think when I was talking with Steakfish, when I started playing around with the Madash testnet and then the ETH2 client itself, I talked with Steakfish about kind of doing that as well. It was a pretty fun process to kind of go through the back end. Like I'm not a super technical person, but uh, just being in the command line and working around and generating your own keys or like the process they set up was pretty fun. So that's not necessarily a, a bad tip because it's not too hard to do, it seems. Yeah, you know, I was looking into um, trying to make it easier to do on a, a Raspberry Pi. So one of the problems with the ETH deposit client is you have to have like download some dependencies. And of course, to download dependencies, you have to be connected to the internet. Um, but there's ways to like sort of create a, a bootable operating system for a Raspberry Pi that you just sort of flash onto a micro SD drive, pop into your Raspberry Pi, and then it would have like the ETH2 client pre-installed. So I've been playing around with seeing if I can get that to work just as an open source project. I'll let you know if I can, but I think that would be helpful to anyone that wants to go through the air gapping process. Ben, is your setup with your validator node also done in with kind of like your own hardware or did you go the route of a cloud service provider like we did? Yeah, I've got a little box at home I'm running Beacon Node and uh, a validator or two on, and it's running super smoothly. It's really good. We're now fellow validator buddies. So we've named our validator node Zelda. Do you have a name for your validator node, Ben? Oh, yeah. It's uh, well known in the community. It's uh, uh, Metal Albert. <laughs> Metal Albert? <laughs> Why? <laughs> so uh, British. <laughs> uh, lo long story involving uh, teddy bears and... Uh, uh, other things. <laughs> Spencer, can you explain the origin story of, of our validator name, Zelda? Well, you know, it was such a labor of love bringing her into the world, calling her validator 90969 seems just a little bit <laughs> impersonal. And also, you know, developers often have little code names for projects. One, because it makes them sound very cool, but also because, you know, referring to everything by ID numbers is cognitively hard to do. So, I worked at one company where we named all of our servers after like the X-Men. And eventually we got so many servers that we were getting into like really obscure X-Men and sort of a, a tradition, but it also helps you uh, as a developer personalize something, I guess. 
Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sensor, for a quick chat. It's so good to get here this update from you about how the validator node is doing, and we hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you so much for having me again. All right. So to the matter at hand, Ben, I don't know if all of our listeners are totally aware of who you are and what you do. So as I mentioned, you do this, this a weekly informative update on all things Ethereum 2.0 related in your newsletter, What's New in ETH2. Can you tell me about what prompted you to start that newsletter and the kind of engagement that you've been getting on your writings since the launch of the Ethereum 2.0 network? Yeah, sure. So back in late 2018, we just started work on building what became the, the Teku client. And we were trying to follow the Ethereum 2 spec, which was new and it was changing very rapidly. And it's frankly, it's really hard to track updates. So I ended up writing myself on lists of all the things I needed to keep an eye on. And then sometime in October that year, I was speaking at an event about Ethereum 2 and somebody asked how they could track the latest news. And before I'd really thought about it, I just said, I'm planning to publish a newsletter. And there was no going back after that. <laughs> so that was it. Didn't know what I was getting myself into at the time. I started off doing weekly, but uh, that was just too much work. So for the last couple of years, it's been bi-weekly or fortnightly, if you speak English, English, which feels about the right cadence. And at first it was very technical, basically just covering what I needed to do my job, but it's become a bit less techy over time. But I still only include things that, that I find interesting. It's very self-indulgent. I'm not trying to cover everything that, that's going on, just uh, stuff that I think is interesting to me. Uh, as for readership, currently each edition gets somewhere between five and 6,000 views per edition. Uh, there was one that got about 11,000. I think Andreas Antonopoulos retweeted it or something. And I find this incredible. It's about double what it was this time last year. So interest definitely picking up uh, after the launch. Nice. So I want to step back for a second and kind of walk out your history in Ethereum. Always fascinated by people who do ETH2 because Ethereum itself is already super complex. And then we have like these people who somehow get even deeper in the belly of the beast and are working on ETH2. Uh, so could you walk us through how you got into Ethereum and then specifically ETH2? Yeah, I love this question. It's great. So I worked for a Japanese multinational company for about 20 years. We were doing a lot of fintech. I was head of engineering role working with banks and other financial services companies. And there was a period when all our sales team, this early 2016, uh, they were coming back from client meetings saying, all our clients want to talk about is something called uh, blockchain. Can you find out what it is? I looked into what it is and just fell down this um, Ethereum rabbit hole and just started spending all my weekends and evenings working on uh, Ethereum stuff. And in those days, you know, if you, if you, looked at Reddit and you followed a couple of newsletters, you could basically understand everything that was going on, which was nice. Uh, then in October 2017, I made my passion my job, which, yeah, I was kind of mixed feelings about, but uh, <laughs> now I, I work all evening and weekends <laughs> as well. But so joined Consensus in October 2017, initially to work on Enterprises Ethereum topic. But my passion was really on public network stuff. And I just love to understand things from the, the bottom up. I like to understand the nuts and bolts of what makes things work, all the details. So I was drawn to this protocol work. And the most interesting thing happening was the future of Ethereum at the time. So yeah, I just started getting involved in that. I was the only person in consensus at that time. But 
over time, more and more have joined the Merry Band working on ETH2. So we've got quite a big R&D operation and the Teku client and staking as a service and Infura and quite a lot of other teams within Consensus involved now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, Ben, that you started off at Consensus looking into enterprise blockchain and enterprise use cases, because while you're still working, you're working now on Ethereum 2.0, which is a public blockchain network. I mean, Teku is kind of marketed and, and built for enterprise. So it seems like a, a neat overlap in what you started off in the space doing. And now what you're doing, it's like enterprise, but also enterprise on public blockchains. Yeah, and it's not a coincidence. Uh, This sort of enterprise drive is part of the DNA of Pegasus, which is a team within Consensus that I'm part of. And we've adopted the Quorum client from JP Morgan last year. You know, it's very much part of uh, what we do. We're very familiar with that space. And so when it came to positioning Teku, it was very natural to go after what we are most familiar with. And yeah, it's good for the clients to be sort of differentiated and attack, as it were, different markets. And so we wanted to make uh, that our own because that's what we felt most comfortable with the most experienced at. Mm -hmm. It seems like we, all three of us, have a very unique specialization. I mean, Ben, you coming from consensus and focusing on enterprise blockchain, Will covering so much of the DeFi Ethereum space, and then me doing kind of my own research more so on the Ethereum 2.0 side. And because this is our first show together, the first of many, I'm sure, I thought it would be a good thing to kind of kick off the start of the rest of our shows together. That sounds a little weird sentence-wise, but the start of the rest of our shows, I'm going to go with it, by reviewing and thinking back on what's gone down these last two months since December 1st, 2020, when Ethereum 2.0 went live. And there's not too much to to talk about, I'm going to say. I mean, it's been a surprisingly uneventful time on Ethereum 2.0. The the launch went very smoothly. There hasn't been very many hiccups. But I'm sure there are things that each of us are still kind of anticipating and uh, maybe in the back of our minds worrying about when it comes to Ethereum 2.0 and its development. I think, Will, you had mentioned that there was more than $6 billion worth of Ether now staked on Ethereum 2.0. And and Ben, you had said it's nearing 100,000 active validators earning rewards. So it's big money at stake. What are we worried about? What are we anxious about, guys? Well, it's gone incredibly well since December the 1st. I don't think the protocol could be running any better. Participation rates are over 99%, which is brilliant. And there really have been zero incidents. There are a couple of fixes in the protocol that we have noticed and we've picked up on, which we're aiming to fix in mid-year with a a small upgrade, nothing serious. I think one interesting thing to watch for as the number of validators goes past 100,000 is uh, that mainnet becomes larger than the largest testnet that we've run so far at that point. And so we're in sort of uncharted territory for performance of clients. I don't expect any trouble, but it will stress the clients a little bit more at that time. But otherwise, things are looking great. What was the size of the largest testnet? Do you remember the metrics? Well, we're currently running Piermont, which is about 115,000, I think, uh, presently. So I want to take the conversation in a little bit different direction for a second here. Uh, In your last newsletter, you're talking about the role-centric model that Vitalik posted in an essay, I think it was in October 2020 now. And for those listening, the role-centric roadmap Vitalik put out is basically like, 
this call for everyone to start just planning to build their dApps on rollups at some point, and that the ETH2 spec was going to include rollups as option instead of executable shards, which is kind of like where the whole model has gone. And I want to ask you, Ben, to explain that for everyone and uh, kind of walk through what Vitalik was thinking and what the ecosystem was kind of expecting that point. Yeah, so this is one of the really interesting about Ethereum. And one of the things I love about it is that the roadmap is kind of exploratory, right? And so we're often, as new opportunities come up, we are happy to pivot and take advantage of them. And uh, rollups are what's called a layer two technology. So they don't sit in the base protocol, but are kind of anchored in it. They're designed to take the load off mainnet. So you can do fast transactions in rollups, which are cheap, but they are proven on the mainnet. So you benefit from the security of the mainnet. And the compromises are not huge. So what the rollup is doing is basically compressing all the data that relates to the transactions. And rather than putting all that data on mainnet, it puts a compressed version of that data on mainnet, which gives you much higher throughput. And so you get more bang for your buck, as it were. Uh, I liken it to kind of turbocharging a car. So your, your car engine needs a fuel-air mix. And if you put a turbocharger on it, it will force more fuel and air through it or compress it. And you get more power out of, out of your car engine. And roll-ups are effectively the same thing. They compress the data and you just get more power out of the EVM. So you're not really sacrificing any security to do this, which is very cool indeed. Yeah, just to follow up on that. So in your weekly newsletter, you kind of noted that the whole ecosystem kind of started changing when that essay was published, which Evan Van Ness, who writes uh, Week in ETH News, kind of critiqued that on Twitter and said like, well, maybe like a lot of other people were also thinking this at the time and Vitalik just kind of put it in ink. So I want to get your take on the podcast for listeners and like, because Ethereum governance is decentralized and every way you look at it, there's a different part and you it's kind of like the elephant metaphor, you know, we're all at different places on the elephant. We all see different things, but I kind of often see Vitalik, his writing at least kind of giving like a general direction for where things are going. And so that's how I took that essay personally, but I'd be interested to see what you think about that whole decision, that essay. Yeah. So I think it's more about communication than, than anything else. And we haven't always been great at communicating very clearly what the plan is at any given time. And as I mentioned earlier, it does change. It does evolve. Evan is, is correct that for some time now, for maybe nine months, that rollups have been a credible future direction for scaling Ethereum. But I, I don't think we communicated that very well. So we had this very linear roadmap with this phase one, uh, phase zero, phase one, phase two, and everybody kind of understood that. And, and when that changed, when we put rollups at the heart of things, and we sort of said, okay, we, we'll, we'll push phase two to the, the distant future, and we'll focus on sharding and executable beacon chain. I don't think that a lot of people in the community will broadly pick that up. My evidence for that is that, you know, we've got this current gas price crisis, and a lot of people are, are tweeting about, you know, we need ETH2 ASAP to fix this. And actually, ETH2 as currently planned doesn't fix the, the gas price at all. So there's a lot of misunderstanding around this. And I wanted to uh, communicate a bit more clearly what the current plan is. Yeah, I definitely think that when it comes to these changes to Ethereum 2.0 roadmap, unless it is really high profile individuals that are tweeting about it and writing blog posts on it, such as Vitalik, whatever he does, it's always kind of picked up by 
reporters here at Coindesk. When it comes to some of the other lesser known Ethereum researchers, it definitely doesn't get as much amplification. And that communication to the broader Ethereum community as the Ethereum community gets bigger and bigger with more adoption for dApps, et cetera, it gets hard. I think decentralized governance is definitely one of the things that I'm slightly worried about, like moving forward as Ethereum becomes hotter and harder. Unlike Bitcoin, which is kind of already made, set in stone, it just runs on its own. There's so much that still needs to be done on Ethereum, that decisions that need to be made, plans that have yet to be fulfilled. It, it almost seems like I want to wait for the adoption. Like I want to stop people from like making the community too big and let Ethereum, you know, have its time to bake and then kind of like, okay, let's open the floodgates, you know, but unfortunately it doesn't happen as neatly as that. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I love the openness of the development process on Ethereum. I, I have said it is Ethereum's superpower that we just draw in so many brilliant people with, with great ideas. And inevitably that helps the technology enormously, but it's also a, a massive coordination problem is definitely not the most efficient way to do things. But I would much rather be doing things this way than in a lab, you know, some of the uh, alternatives to Ethereum are developed behind closed doors, not even open source. And I think they lose because of this. So we love to do things the, the difficult way, but I think it ends up with a much better product at the end of the process. Mm -hmm. And speaking of some of the, the most difficult things that developers are kind of looking forward to achieving this year, what are some of your guys' predictions for 2021? I hope, you know, at the end of the year, we can kind of look back and like evaluate our predictions. So what do you think of some of the big milestones at the end of 2021? I think with gas fees going up continually, I think we'll see more people putting Ether into the ETH2 staking contract because it's going to make it more difficult to earn yields. I'm expecting that about like the two, I think there's almost 3% of the supply of Ether out there is on the ETH2 staking contract right now. I would expect that probably to double by the end of the year at the very least, just because of organic pressure from people chasing yield. I think that's also just going to increase as we get closer to maybe the deposit contract opening up and then beacon chain ETH, which is like a derivative of Ether staked on the beacon chain becomes like more available on secondary markets. So like Coinbase and Kraken have like beacon chain ETH that you can swap in and out of. So that would be my general prediction. Yeah, that sounds about right to me as well. I'd put in a number like 5 million Ether staked, but maybe double what we are now, maybe 6 million. That seems about right to me uh, as well, Will. On the technology front, I think the, the first uh, network upgrade, commonly known as a hard fork, will be behind us. And we are going to decide in the next few months whether we're going to prioritize doing the merge between ETH1 and ETH2, or we're going to prioritize putting data shards into the beacon chain. And that's really a complicated decision with many factors, but we need to do one or the other rather than try to do both at once. And whichever one we decide to deliver first, we'll have a, a testnet running in place by the end of this year, I'm pretty sure. That'll be an interesting debate and discussion to be following up on um, whether to prioritize the ETH1, ETH2 merge or the data shards. I feel like prediction-wise, I can't help but think that as more people are beginning to stake their ETH, they're going to start to want more ways in which they can fuel that locked ETH with some amount of liquidity so that it can be used in 
the near term and the uncertainty of when the ETH that's being issued on Ethereum 2.0 will be able to be transferred, that kind of stuff. I think there will be either bond-like assets created on Ethereum to create that kind of liquidity or some kind of development on the technical side. But I do expect by the end of this year for some ways in which people can start using their Beacon Chain issued Ether. And that'll, I'm sure, have some kind of an impact on the crypto markets that I'm looking forward to taking a look at. I didn't realize that our interview with Spencer had gone on for a while, but I think actually this next question will have to be our last for the show this week, but we can definitely continue to talk. We will continue to talk about Ethereum 2.0 in the coming weeks. Last question kind of for all of us, the best and the worst ETH 2.0 client and why? (laughs) Ben, we already know that you're biased here, so we're going to let you go first. Yeah, the first thing to say is that all four of the clients are great. They're all production great. They're very performance. You, you can't make a wrong choice uh, here. As I mentioned before, we've targeted Teku as the client of choice for institutional stakers, which just reflects who we are as consensus. I do do regular analyses of rewards earned by large staking services. Uh, it's nice to see that the top performing services are all running Teku, but it's also a great client for home stakers. I'm uh, running it myself on Metal Albert. Uh, runs like a dream. As for worst client, the worst client is whatever everyone else is using. And I should unpack that a little. The Ethereum 2 protocol punishes coordinated failures quite harshly. So if your validator is down at the same time as lots of other validators are down, perhaps there's a bug in one of the clients that that stops them all dead. We've seen that on, on a testnet. Then your losses are going to be bigger. If you're running a less popular client and it goes down, your losses are going to be smaller. So it pays to potentially choose a less widely used client. That would be my choice for the worst client. So to that point, I'm going to give a name to that. Right now, it seems that the majority of people are running Prism. So I definitely agree with you there. I mean, (laughs) Prism is clearly the most popular among validators. However, there comes with a higher degree of risk. Like if Prism ever issued an upgrade and that upgrade had like a bug in the software, then you're going to be punished running that software to a much higher degree just because everybody else has that same kind of attack vector, which is why client diversity is so important on Ethereum 2.0 and something that I know developers like you, Ben, and Danny Ryan too have been stressing um, to kind of get people to explore and try out different clients. I know for Spencer, at least, the reason why he chose Lighthouse was because the programming language Rust was something he was very familiar with. I really like the idea of ETH 2.0 like client that can be run on mobile devices. So I really like the work that Nimbus is doing, them kind of at the forefront of making the Ethereum 2.0 software as less computationally burdensome on devices as possible and something that can be running on the background of people's like iPad or something in my view, is just such an interesting project. So that would definitely be my pick for the best. What about you, Will? Worst and best? I won't opine too much on it because I'm not running a validator. From what I've seen just from reporting, I've seen Lighthouse is a very popular client from devs and thick of it. Afri Shonen's also said in his recent recap of a lot of the data from the ETH2 launch that Lighthouse had pretty favorable overall experience uh, and great performance. He also noted Teku, so that's awesome. But I think just looking at the data that Afri pulls and 
if anyone's listening, he has a great follow on Twitter after Shonen. He's done a lot of stuff with both parody and Ethereum and Ethereum classic. Um, but I think he ran every single client and then he did a bunch of like data and stats on him, put together nicely for a package. He did that for, I think every multi-client testnet and single client testnet beforehand too. And yeah, all the metrics look great for every single one. There's different comparison points for every chain, but like Ben said, they're, they're running pretty smoothly. Boo. <laughs> Such a boring answer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, I'm all You're trying this- to cause division. I'm not, we will not stand for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, this is good. I'm all about the shout outs and we should definitely link in today's show notes to that blog post by Afri Shodan. For all three of us, we're going to be back next week with more insights on Ethereum 2.0 development. And um, each of us, we're going to be sharing more of our thoughts when it comes to the technical development of Ethereum 2.0, how the Ethereum mainnet chain is impacting Ethereum. And of course, we're gonna be talking more about the crypto markets each week. So if you enjoyed our banter today, please be sure to subscribe to Coindesk Podcast so that you can be alerted when the next new episode airs. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the newsletters. As we discussed, I'm writing one every other week on Ethereum 2.0 development. You can find it at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. You can also subscribe to Christine and I's weekly newsletter, Valid Points, by going to coindesk.com. There you can keep up to date with Coindesk's staking journey and the ETH2 network in general. If you have any questions you'd like answered on this podcast to connect with each of us on Twitter, our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. See ya. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim Will Foxley and Ben Edgington, with guest appearance Spencer Beggs. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.